0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We're in Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 15 to the end of the chapter. The first half of the chapter discussed disciples who wanted to be big shots in the kingdom of God, and instead Jesus said, you need to not make these little children stumble, namely the little children who are his believers. So we went from the disciples went from ruling over the over the brethren in the kingdom to how to get along with them. And that's what we're talking about now and how to treat them right and how to not cause them to stumble. And so that leads into this passage on church discipline, a very famous passage, actually. Matthew 18, verse 15 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, this is talking about brothers. This is not talking about non-Christians, how you deal with non-Christians. I don't know how you deal with non-Christians. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people in the church. Now, it says to rebuke this brother who sins against you. Now, let's start start talking about what this does not mean. The first thing it does not mean It does not mean to hold your grievance to yourself and never tell the offending party about your offense because you love him. No, it doesn't say that. It says go to him and rebuke him in private. It doesn't say just hold it in your chest and get bitter about it, letting your bitterness eat you up. Leviticus 19, 17 says this, You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. That's kind of an interesting law, is it not? This is not really judicial. This is more interpersonal in Leviticus of all places. Don't harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke him directly. Adam Clark says, The Jews have a saying that one of the causes of the ruin of their nation was, No man reproved another. All right, so that's the first thing the, ver- the rebuke does not mean is to hold it privately. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. You don't stay private about your offense. The second thing that rebuke does not mean is to wait and be silent until the offender comes to the offended one before the offended says anything. In other words, I'm just not going to say anything till he comes and, and apologizes to me. That's not what it says. You, you're supposed to rebuke the person and not hold it in. Now, it sounds like a face-to-face interview. Doesn't talk. It's, it's not in writing here, but I guess a writing is better than nothing if face-to-face discussion is impossible. Of course, face-to-face communication is always better than in writing if you can do it. Now, let's talk about this word private. If your brother sins against you, you rebuke him in private. Now, What does in private not mean? It doesn't mean you go and tell everybody else the problem so that you can get counsel from them to know how to deal with them. I actually know somebody who insisted on doing that, and then when I pointed this out, that, hey, it doesn't say you go get counsel with everybody. You do it in private, and it didn't matter. He still said, I need to get counsel. I need to get counsel before you see somebody. And I'm thinking, well, what does the Bible say? I mean, is there any room for ambiguity here? Does in private mean you go talk about the problem with somebody else so you can know how better to deal with the situation when you go talk to the offendi- offender? Of course not. I can tell you right now that this causes more personal grief, and I've suffered it, and I've and I've and offen- I've, I've violated this principle and had it violated against me, and I'm telling you, if you want to violate this, you do so at your own risk. You're going to pay a big, big price. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he, that means the offender, but if you won't listen, take one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Now, of course, one or two witnesses that you bring with you will give a total of three witnesses. Altogether, you, the offended one, plus and plus one of your witnesses that you bring with you, that makes two, or two that... witnesses you bring with you makes three. So that's two to three. So that fits the scriptural standard. This is a famous judicial principle in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, you assume the witnesses would be qualified. They would be mature. So if you're going to take witnesses, make sure they're competent to be witnesses. Now, also, this assumes that the offense is something that rises to the level of importance. You don't take two or three witnesses on a minor issue, something that should be let go. And I would personally define importance as what what is important enough to, to, to take to the level of church discipline. What is important enough is something that you cannot forgive or something that you can't let go. And actually, it should be something that if the Church discipline goes to the third level, which we'll talk about in a minute, the third level being the offender gets excommunicated and kicked out of the church. If your grief is serious enough that ultimately in stage three, the offender could get kicked out of the church, well, then that's serious enough. Take two or three witnesses. But if it's something that even if it goes to the church, the offender is not going to get kicked out of the church, don't do that. Just either talk to the person privately and get it settled or just eat it. Let it go. So this is talking about serious stuff. By the way, I've done a lot of a lot of stuff on church discipline on my YouTube channel under House Church. If you look up Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies, and look at the playlist. It's a, it's got a brown thumbnail. House uh, House Church. And I've got several videos on church discipline. Church discipline is an interesting subject. and get very, very deep into it, much deeper than we're going to get here. Matthew 18, verse 17. If he, that's the offender, the one who did the sin, if he pays no attention to them, that's the one or two witnesses that you bring along, tell the church. So these witnesses are more than just witnesses. They also try to convince the guy that he did something wrong. Tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church... Let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. Now, this verse assumes the offender actually committed the the offense, and the offense has been established by the church. Now, notice it says the church. It does not say the pastor. It does not say the elders. It says to the church. That keeps everything open above board. Everybody knows what the charge is. Everybody knows what the defense is. There's no need for gossip and wondering what's going on in the elders' offices or the pastor's office and why did they make that decision and then you got half the church disagreeing with the elders then you got half agreeing then you got a church split then it gets in the press and you got a gosh awful disaster on your hands it's for the whole church when the whole church makes the decision it's more likely to be accepted by everybody there's not going to be factions and disagreements and so forth because everybody participated in the decision and if you're going to excommunicate somebody you got to have a unanimous Decision. That's also when my church government videos under in the, my house church playlist that's worth looking at too. At also consensual government. This, of course, assumes a small church. You can't tell it to the whole church if you got a big mega church. That's one reason I don't believe in mega churches because the New Testament doesn't fit mega churches. The New Testament church, this one doesn't fit mega churches. Now, some say, as Adam Clark says, or many people say, as Adam Clark says, that the pastor or the elders can represent the whole church, which I just finished saying, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that, it says the church. That's that's the whole problem. That's, that's, that's imposing people's ideas on the verses that are reading the verse for exactly what it says. Now let's talk about the word church. This is only one of two places in the Gospels where church is mentioned. The other one is two chapters previous, which we just talked about in the previous audio. Matthew sixteen eighteen. I also say to you that you are a Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The word is Ecclesia, it means assembly. It means the local congregation. Now, it's interesting, there's an oddball idea that John Gill has is that this is talking about disputes among the 12 apostles. If the apostles had a dispute with each other, they could take it up privately with the, offend, the offending apostle. And if the, then if the offending apostle didn't listen, they could bring two or three other apostles to that apostle and talk about it. And if that didn't work, they would take it to the whole 12. I do not believe that for one minute. I don't think many other people do either. Let him be, as this. this is assumed that the church unanimously decides that the offender is, has committed the offense, how he is to be, to be treated, like an unbeliever and a tax collector, which basically means excommunication because churches don't have unbelievers in them unless you're reformed. And you love that visible church idea, but uh, tax collector, of course, just you, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They cheated, they swindled, they robbed. The Roman government says collect X number of taxes, then they would farm out the the raising of the taxes to tax collectors, and the tax collectors would get the Rome's share, and then they would extort a huge surplus over Rome's share, so they could pay themselves and live in opulence. And so, we just think, IRS. How, do you have a positive, warm, fuzzy feeling about the IRS? Well, this is what this is how you were supposed to treat people who who went through the three stages of church discipline and were found guilty. Like that brother in Corinth, I'm sure, after they went carried forth their church, the person that was sleeping with a stepmother, they kicked him out. Now, of course, we've got to remember here, the whole purpose of church discipline is not just to kick somebody out. It's to force them to not do the things that get, get them kicked out. And if they do get kicked out, to restore them after their repentance. That's something that should always be emphasized. Matthew 18, verse 18. I assure you, Jesus continues, and the you, of course, he's talking to his disciples. I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. We need to emphasize that already. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. So this is This is the apostles doing things that have already been decided in heaven. They're just executing the judgment that's already been made in heaven by God. Now, what does bind mean? I'm going to give you four options, which are very close together, just focusing on a few different aspects, but they're basically the same option. Here's option number one from John Gill. Binding means to decide what's sinful or what's lawful or not sinful or not lawful. What doctrine is true and what doctrine is not true. Gill, of course, is a rabbinic expert. Let me give you a quote. In which sense the words bound and loosed are used in the Talmudic writings, times without number, for that which is forbidden and declared to be unlawful, and for that which is free of use and pronounced to be so, in multitudes of places we read of one rabbi binding and of another loosing, thousands and ten thousands of instances of this kind might be produced. A whole volume of extracts on this head might be compiled, so... In other words, there's a lot of evidence. Binding just means to decide what's right and what's wrong. Now, the early apostles actually did this. They did make decisions. They determined the controversy on legalism in Acts 15, although I will point out it was not just the apostles. It was everybody there in that meeting in the Jerusalem Council. The elders of the Church of Jerusalem were at that meeting, too. The Apostles forbade observance of Jewish holidays and observance, namely Paul the Apostle did, in Galatians 4.9. The Apostles said Gentiles were equal to Jews after the falling of the Holy Spirit in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. So, the Apostles did sort of thing. That is not really focused on church discipline. That's just deciding in general what's right or wrong. That's the general idea. Binding is a rabbinic term for making a decision, an ecclesiastical decision. Option number B, which John Gill suggests but rejects, is binding means to determine whether a man is sinful or not. Adam Clark agrees that that's what it, this means, even though Gill does not. He says, yes, binding is deciding whether a man is sinful or not, and he cites John 10:23 to back that up. John 20, verse 23 says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And that sounds like, yes, you, the church has the authority to decide what's sinful or not. And that's basically what church discipline is. The NIV study Bible puts it this way. Binding means the authority to announce things determined by God. And they, and the NIV study Bible emphasizes that whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And they mention also that it's the church, not Peter, that does the binding, which is a good point. I mentioned that the church is not the pastor or the elders. It's also not Peter. Even though Peter was given the keys to the kingdom in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, it's the church that does the binding, not Peter. And it's already been bound in heaven. This is a, uh, the NIV study, or well, somebody, gives a good example of this, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. Acts 5.3 Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? They were collecting, selling property, real estate, and giving the money to the apostles. And Ananias lied about it. His wife Sapphira came in a d- later did the same thing. And so in Acts five nine, Peter said to her, "Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out." So the Holy Spirit killed Ananias and Sapphira. Peter didn't do it; he just carried out what had already been decided in heaven. So this option here to announce things determined by God already—then have a study Bible way of putting it—doesn't mean that Peter or the apostles, Peter representing the apostles it doesn't mean that they have the authority to determine things themselves. And to back that up, Jameson Fosson Brown has a quote, Whatever this means, it was soon expressly extended to all the apostles, so that the claim of supreme authority in the church made for Peter by the church of Rome, and then arrogated to themselves by the popes as, le- as the legitimate successors of St. Peter, is baseless and impudent. So that the claim of supreme authority in the church... By the Pope's is baseless and impudent. I hope that doesn't trigger any Catholic listening to this, but it is. It's baseless and impudent for any Pope to exercise authority over your church. It's not the Pope's business. It's your church's business to decide to determine the membership of the church. Here's option number four from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown on what binding means. It means the authority to decide admission to and rejection from membership of the church. And that's basically putting it right on the head, all these other Options, of course, basically are saying the same thing. A little bit more general than this, Jameson Fawcett Brown makes it more particular right down to the context here, which is church membership and excommunication. Now, let's point out this pronoun you here. I assure you, Jesus says. Now, remember a short time before the power of binding and loosening was given to Peter alone in Matthew 16, verse 9. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. That's the same language, but that's talking to Peter. But now the U is plural here. The authority is extended to the twelve, as John Gill says. So whatever binding and loosing means, it means nothing in particular with Peter, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. So this is all the apostles had the power of binding, not just Peter. And it means to decide who's going to be excommunicated or not. Matthew 18:19. Again, I assure you, Jesus continues to teach his apostles, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, this verse is quoted over and over and over again, ripped from its context. Now, I don't have any problem about two people agreeing about something and praying for it, but the context is church discipline. And remember, the binding and loosing must have already been decided by God in heaven, and then it's carried out. If you get together with one of your Christian friends and you two agree about a matter, It, yeah, it'll come about on one condition. If it has already been decided by your Father in heaven that he's going to answer that prayer in the way that you're praying it. So this verse has been misused somewhat, I believe. It can, however, I believe, be applied to other situations as long as you grant that the Father has the authority to decide already in heaven before you pray. Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now again, this verse has been applied to just just general situations with two or three Christians, just kind of bumped together. I used, to, I, in fact, I've heard people say this is a church. No, it's not a church. I will say this though, uh, it's talking about church discipline, and Jesus mentions two or three gathered in my name. In the context is church discipline. So apparently, the churches were pretty small back then. I say that in case any megachurch person might be happening to be listening to this. Megachurches did not exist in the New Testament. Thank God where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now what that means is two or three gathered together in order to decide a church discipline case and to decide whether someone should be excommunicated or not. Jesus is there with them. They're gathered in my name. That means the two or three gathered there are publicly professing Christ. They're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ at church. Gill says this, Jesus is presiding, quote, presiding over them, ruling in their hearts, directing their councils, assisting them in all their concern, confirming what they do, and giving a blessing and a success to all they are engaged in. And I want to tell you, church discipline is very, very serious business. I've read a bunch of scandals that occur with big mega churches botching Church discipline like Willow Creek, for example, that was a good one. And there's some other ones that Larry Tomczak and Joshua Harris formerly was at that church in Washington, D.C., and I can't remember the name of it right now, but these huge churches that got in all kinds of trouble, all kinds of trouble because they didn't do church discipline right. you got to be careful with this. It's dynamite. And it's necessary, And I'll tell you another thing is people not doing the church discipline. You're a lot like there's a certain church in Atlanta I just uh, compared it to a theological whorehouse on a blog I just did. I'm not going to mention its name, but they openly allow homosexuals to uh, to attend church. Well, there's nothing wrong with homosexuals attending church as long as they don't openly practice and openly profess their homosexuality. But if they're going to say, well, that ain't nothing wrong with what I'm doing," you know, this is the culture today. They don't care what the Bible says, they just care what the culture does. You let. People like that, and you don't do church discipline on them, uh, on on that in that situation. Your church deserves extinction and probably will get what it deserves. matthew eighteen verses twenty one through twenty two. Then Peter came to him and said, "Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? The context here is Jesus is talking about what happens if a brother offends you sins against you, and this this is why Peter asking this. It fits in the context. How many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. The NIV has 77 times, which I don't, it's not right. The NIV, NIV note says, or 70 times seven, the marginal note, so I, we'll do 70 times seven. It means times without number. I used to take this thing literally, being influenced by a hyper dispensationalist in my youth, but the number is indefinite. It means just a whole bunch of times. Seven is the number of divine perfection, Uh, Ten is the number of divine completion, like ten by ten by ten cubits in the Holy of Holies. And seven, you know, everything's based on seven, seven days. And you got a Sabbath and you got seven years, another Sabbath year, seven, seven, seven. So seven times ten, that's a perfectly divine number. Then multiply that times seven. And you've just got a whole bunch of times from what Jesus is saying. You just keep right on forgiving him. (laughs) The number is indefinite. Here's another scripture in Luke 17, verses 3 through 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, of course, this is an extreme situation. This is Jesus who said this to his disciples. You must forgive him. People are not going to keep offending you seven times a day. So, I mean, at that point, I mean, I just don't even see how that could be possible, because you're not going to let him offend you seven times a day. You're going to get out of his way. You're going to stop him. I mean, you know, That's not the point. The point is is how much you must forgive somebody, how, how much Jesus emphasized forgiveness, because people are going to screw you. I had a good friend of mine. Well, he's still a good friend, but years ago, he says, you got to be careful. Christians will do you. And I never forgot that. I said, oh, my gosh, this is not this is not the mark of a Christian. Some Christians will. They'll do you. I've got some stories that will curl your hair about what Christians have done to me. And I tell you, it's going to happen, and you better forgive them. You better forgive them. Jesus is saying, I don't care how bad it was, I don't care what they did. Forgive them. Now, when Peter chose seven times, was he thinking literally? Was he thinking literally, or was he, or was he thinking it meant seven in the sense of divine perfection, so therefore uh, unlimited number of times? I think he was thinking literally here. And Jesus went to the, uh, to the metaphorical use of the numbers, which meant infinite. The rabbis taught that three times for forgiveness was enough. And this is one more example of how Jesus was so, his ethic was so much higher than that of the rabbis. Here's what the rabbis said, according to John Gill. A man that commits a sin, the first time they pardon him, the second time they pardon him, the third time they pardon him, the fourth time they do not pardon. So Clark agrees with me that it's evident that Peter uses it here in the plain literal sense. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown doesn't say definitely, but he says it's possible. He says, quote, this being the sacred and complete number, perhaps his meaning was, is there to be a limit at which the needful forbearance will be full? In other words, was Peter thinking about, I'll put up with so much garbage from this guy for so long, and after that, to heck with him, I'll never forgive him. No, that's not an option. It's not fun to live with bitterness in your heart. It's not fun to live with revenge in your heart. It is not the Christian way. It is not the fruit of the Spirit. It is nothing but misery. So Jesus said what he said, and he meant what he said. You're supposed to forgive over and over and over and over again. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 25. Here we have a little parable about forgiveness. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. And that was a heap of money, a lot of money. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now the kingdom of heaven is compared to this king, and so that kingdom of heaven is the church that's on earth. The kingdom, of course, can be of the departed saints and angels in heaven too. It's the place where God rules, but here he's talking about on earth. The king, of course, is God the Father. He has slaves, that would be people that he excuse me, people that are sinners more particularly sinners who have been forgiven by God. And these, of course, sinners who have been forgiven by God, that description would fit these disciples who were asking how much they needed to forgive people. So this this parable follows right on Peter's question about how many times should I forgive people? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a parable about forgiveness, Peter. Now you notice that The one who owed 10,000 talents, that was a heap big sinner. He had a, there was no way he could pay it back. There's no way he could satisfy his debt to God for all the sins he had committed. So he was sold into slavery in the parable, and this was according to Jewish law. Here's some scriptures that show that slaves were sold into slavery in order to pay debts. Exodus 21.2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he's to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. Now, by the way, this shows that if you're going to lend money to somebody and you're worried about him not paying back, paying you back, the only collateral you're going to get is six years of labor. You're not going to get any more than that because after six years, he's set free. This put a limit to slavery. It's put a limit to debt slavery. It was a very humane provision in the law. And it also kept people from lending and people from borrowing inordinately amounts of money, because everybody knew if you lent more than six years worth of labor, you're not, you're not going to get it back. Leviticus 25:39. if your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to do slave labor. And that's an interesting verse, which I need to look into some more. Because he's a slave, and if he's not going to do slave labor, then what is he? What is he going to do? It might be survive. it might be a particular kind of label that's extremely degrading. I'm not sure, but at any rate, that's not the point here. The point here is that selling yourself to slavery was—it was a common practice, or at least it was a legal practice in the in the Torah in the Pentateuch, Exodus 22:3. But if this happens after sunrise, there is a guilt of bloodshed, a, a, a robbery. A thief must make full restitution. If he is unable, he will be sold because of his theft. So, if you owe somebody in a business debt, or if because you stole from him, also prisoners of war too, not mentioned here, you get sold into slavery. And there's another verse in Leviticus 25:47, which I won't read. You got the idea. It was it's very clear in the law. So, so what this is saying here, the master has sold his. Not only him, but his wife, his children, and everything he had. So this was a huge debt. Now, he already was a slave, so he sold in, in slavery to somebody else. So that basically meant that the slave just switched masters from the old slave to the, to, the old, to the old master to the new master. However, the situation was different in that his wife, his children, and everything else he had was also sold off to the new master or to somebody else to pay the debt. So now the slave is in hock up to his eyeballs. Matthew 18, verses 26 through 27. At this, or he would have been, at this the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. Now, the master, of course, is God the Father. He released him. That means he forgave him his sins. That's the, And the parallel here is that he forgave. He's God the Father is going to forgive sinners and not make them pay the debt that they owe. Matthew 18, verses 28 through 29. But that slave, the forgiven slave, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. Now, a 100 denarii is a few dollars, as the NIV note says. 10,000 talents, by the way, was a ton of money. Uh, even one talent was a lot of money. But now... So he had already been forgiven a whole heap of debt, and now somebody owed him a little tiny debt. He grabbed him, and in other words, the debtor slave, the creditor slave grabbed the debtor slave. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. Exactly the same words that the creditor slave had said to his master. This slave was utterly, this creditor slave was utterly merciless. John Gill says he expresses... Uh, This expresses the rigor and severity used by some professors of religion to their fellow Christians who, having offended them in ever so small a matter, will not put up with the affront, nor forgive the injury without having the most ample satisfaction in avenging themselves upon them to the uttermost. Again, this all fits in with the idea, forgive your brother. Forgive him, 70 times 7. And remember, why do you forgive him? Because you've been forgiven an awful lot more than how your brother screwed you. Because you've offended God a lot worse than your brother has for you. So if God can forgive you that much, maybe you better forgive a little bit to your brothers. Let's finish up here with verses 30 through 35. But he wasn't willing to credit a slave. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison, the debtor slave, threw the debtor slave into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to the master everything that had happened. Of course, the master now, remember, stands for God. He finds out about how you how this slave treated his fellow slave or how this Christian treated his fellow Christian. Then after he had summoned him, then after he and the master had summoned him, the slave that owed 10,000 talents, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. And of course, forgiving the brother from the heart is the main point of the parable. The other... Parts of the parable details. Remember, we're not supposed to give spiritual significance to the details of a parable. We should not make a parable walk on all fours. So this is basically fitting in with forgiveness, which deals with the previous instructions to Peter about forgiving people seven times. Now, how about this torture? But again, you don't you don't make doctrine on details of parables. Well, let's look at torture though. And some people have said that torture could stand for hell. Well, I, how can that stand for hell if this is talking about Christians here and people not forgiving? their fellow christian now you could say well it's not referring to christians it's referring to jews and it's talking about the people who are not forgiving people is pharisees but i don't know since when did the god the father forgive the pharisees for their ten thousand talents worth of debt i don't think so this is talking about christians so this can't be can't be hell john gill says it refers to being excommunicated by the church going back to the context here in chapter eighteen dealing with excommunication yeah maybe In my opinion, it doesn't really stand for anything, in particular because it's not the main point of the parable. It just reflects God's attitude in general toward those who don't forgive. And believe me, God is not happy with that. Forgive your brother. And with that exhortation, we'll finish Matthew 18, take up Matthew 19, next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.